welcome to Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your regular host, Anthony Sanders, director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. But most of you are probably wondering, where's Anya Bidwell? You promised us that for this week, we would have Anya, and then we would have the special short circuit for a symposium on Professor Joanna Schwartz's book, Shielded, um, Joanna Schwartz from UCLA, and her book about immunities that the police enjoy. And don't worry, we're going to get to that in just a moment. So hang tight, you'll hear from Anya and the whole uh, event that they had at Georgetown University Law Center um, that they co-sponsored with the Georgetown Center for the Constitution just the other day it was held on Tuesday, May 7th. And again, you'll hear that in just a moment. But just a couple things before we bring you to Anya. First, we've mentioned a couple times here on the show, but coming up on March 31st is our conference on the 100th anniversary of Meyer versus Nebraska the famous unenumerated rights case. If you live in the D.C. area, we'd love to see you in person, and we'll put a link again in our show notes if you'd like to RSVP. And if you can't, if you live anywhere in the universe other than the Washington, D.C. area, you can catch it online, and uh, we will have a link um, soon enough on our webpage with the link to that. So just hang tight, wait for March 31st, and also we'll have videos of the event after the fact also. Also, if you live in the Charleston, South Carolina area, I would love to see you. I will be speaking about my upcoming book, Baby Ninth Amendments, How Americans Embraced Unenumerated Rights and Why It Matters. I will be speaking about that on Thursday, March 16th at noon in the Charleston County Office Building. It's um, a CLA, a CLE for attorneys sponsored very kindly by the Charleston County Bar Association. But if you're not an attorney and you just want to hear about the book, you can come by too. It is at 101 Meeting Street, room 130 in downtown Charleston. So love to see any short circuit listeners again, in Charleston, South Carolina, who, who want to come to that. And I'll put a link to the association's calendar in the show notes. Finally, if you're interested in litigating for liberty and you're an attorney with three plus years experience, then we are hiring. We're hiring both in our office in Arlington, Virginia, in the DC area, but also in Arlington, Texas. So I'll put a link in the show notes to our jobs page where you can check that out if you're interested. Okay, enough from me. You came to hear from Anya and Professor Schwartz and a number of other experts who are going to talk about her book, Shielded, in a few cases. One of them we talked about earlier on the show a few weeks ago, Edwards versus uh, City of Florissant. I think even if you heard that, you'll want to hear it again for some uh, other takes from these scholars. So stick around. Shielded, number of cases, and you'll hear from Anya in just a minute. Thanks, everybody. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Short Circuit. We are here at Georgetown Law School celebrating the publication of Joanna Schwartz's timely new book on various barriers to accountability for state and local police, aptly called Shielded. 
Thank you to the Georgetown Center for the Constitution for providing us with this amazing space where we are now recording in front of a live audience. We have a packed agenda today. We will first talk to Professor Schwartz about her book. Following this book conversation, we will discuss four cases involving some sort of a procedural barrier to a civil rights lawsuit. Most of these barriers are also discussed in Joanna's book. Each case will be introduced by one of our guests here today. Everyone is a celebrated legal scholar with a ton of experience in the field of government immunity. Our panelists really need no introduction, so I will be brief in introducing them. Joanna Schwartz teaches at UCLA School of Law. She's a prolific scholar on qualified immunity and other barriers to lawsuits against individual police officers. In addition to the book on this very topic she just published, she regularly writes for prestigious law review journals and also for newspapers and magazines such as the Washington Post, New York Times, Politico, in the Atlantic. Joanna, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Alex Reynard, who is Joanna's frequent co-author, teaches at Cardozo Law and directs its Center for Rights and Justice. He published an amazing number of influential articles on accountability for federal police, on qualified immunity, and on state laws as alternatives to Section 1983 for vindicating civil rights. Alex is also a practicing lawyer. He argued cases in federal courts of appeals and in the Supreme Court, including the famous... Ashcroft versus Iqbal. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Anya. It's <laughs> great to be here. Seth Stoughton is, as some papers identify him, quote, a cop turned law professor. <laughs> I didn't realize that's the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seth became widely known for being the last witness for the prosecution in Derek Chauvin's criminal trial. Uh, when he is not busy testifying, Seth teaches at the University of South Carolina Law School, publishes impactful law review articles, and writes for national papers like the New York Times, Politico, and The Atlantic. Prior to his career in the law, Seth served as an officer with the Tallahassee Police Department. Welcome, Seth. Thank you. And Carlos Vasquez needs no introduction at Georgetown. After all, he teaches here in the areas of international law, constitutional law, and federal courts, and writes influential books and academic articles on all of these subjects. My personal favorite is a paper he co-authored with Steve Laddick called State Law, the Westfall Act, and the Nature of the Bivens Question. If people want to know why it is impossible to sue federal officials these days and why that's bonkers, <laughs> reading it will have you covered. Welcome, Carlos. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> so before we begin discussing the cases, let's um, uh, talk to Joanna about the book. So let's just get you started with what is this book about and why did you decide to write it? So thank you so much, Anya um, and Alexa and, and, and Patrick and, and everyone for organizing this and uh, for you all uh, coming today. It really means the world to me to have you here. Uh, Shielded is a book that uh, is the product of more than 20 years of advocacy and research. Um, I first began thinking uh, about some of the questions that form the core of the book as a civil rights attorney in the early 2000s uh, when I was bringing a lawsuit along with the firm I was working with against the New York City Department of Corrections. And as I was looking at the 
personnel files of the officers that I was going to depose, I was surprised to see that there was no mention of, of lawsuits or lawsuit history um, in the personnel files. And then when I questioned the officers, it became clear that the officers did not know whether they had been sued, how often they had been sued, what the allegations were in the cases, whether they won or lost, and how much money was paid. And as someone who was dedicating my career to bringing these cases with the hope of making a difference, it was pretty discouraging to see that uh, these officers and their supervisors and people at the highest level uh, of, the, uh, of the agency did not know the first thing about the lawsuits brought against their officers. That experience and, and others from my practice have really informed and jump-started my research agenda when I became a law professor at UCLA. And I've spent the past 15 years or so uh, working on empirical studies that examine how civil rights litigation works on the ground. Uh, and I published those uh, findings in law review articles, but uh, following the murder of George Floyd in May 2020, I thought it was really important to write a book that described these barriers to relief, described them in a way that people who don't read law review articles for fun on Saturday afternoons would find uh, illuminating and, and understandable and accessible. And my goal was to show that people whose constitutional rights are violated often only have civil lawsuits as a mechanism of justice to either get compensation or perhaps forward-looking reform but that the Supreme Court and state and local governments across the country have created so many barriers to relief in these cases uh, that justice is uh, extremely, extremely difficult to find. And also at the end of the book, in, in addition to describing all of these failures, uh, it offers a possible path forward, ways in which changes to policies and laws uh, at the federal and state and local level could get us to a better system, if not a perfect one. You uh, opened the first chapter of your book with this case called Monroe versus Pape, and you continuously come back to it. So could you tell us about the case? Why is it so important for your book? And also kind of... Um, this, how does Monroe versus Pape talk to what's happening today with cases like Tyree Nichols and George Floyd and so many others? Well, it's really a, an honor and a pleasure to be able to talk about Monroe versus Pape in this particular audience because Mr. Houston Stevens, uh, who is one of the plaintiffs in, the, in that case, uh, is here with us today. Uh, Monroe versus Pape is a, a case that arose from... Uh, an incident that happened in late October of 1958. James Monroe and his wife Flossie and their children were asleep in their apartment in Chicago when a Chicago police detective, admiringly called Chicago's toughest cop um, by, the, by the reporters at the time, he apparently uh, liked to take photographs of himself with uh, bodies of people he had killed, uh, and a bunch of other Chicago officers broke into the Monroe's home in the middle of the night without a warrant. They broke into the home because a white woman had picked a photo of James Monroe out of a lineup 
or out of a group of photos, and pointed him out as the, the man who had killed her husband. Well, it turned out that James Monroe had nothing to do with the murder of her husband. Actually, her lover and she had decided together to have him killed so that she could collect in on his insurance money. But uh, the, the officers, Pape and the other detectives, broke into the Monroe's home, got Flossie and James out of bed at gunpoint. They were in the living room of their home without their clothes on. Frank Pape was assaulting James Monroe, hitting him, interrogating him about the murder, uh, all the while using odious racial slurs, and the other officers were assaulting the Monroe's children as they came into the living room to find out what was going on. It was uh, Houston Stevens' 17th birthday that day, and when uh, he reflected back on that day, it was his view that the kids screaming and calling out to their neighbors was what kept James Monroe alive. They ultimately took James Monroe to the station house, held him for 10 hours, didn't let him see a judge or um, an attorney, and ultimately he was released when the woman couldn't, couldn't pick uh, Mr. Monroe out of a lineup. So James Monroe and his family found a lawyer from the ACLU in Chicago, who had been very focused on unlawful detentions in Chicago by the police department and all sorts of other abuses that the department was engaged in. And they decided to try to bring a lawsuit under a statute called Section 1983. This was a statute back enacted in 1871 during the Reconstruction following the Civil War. Uh, and it was intended to provide a federal court forum for people whose constitutional rights had been violated. But the Supreme Court had quickly interpreted that statute and a number of other statutes, as well as the 14th Amendment, in ways that made it essentially impossible to bring claims under that statute. And no one had really tried, or certainly not with any success, until uh, the 50s, when there, there was an idea that maybe this was a claim that could be brought. And <clears throat> it was brought in Monroe versus Pape. The lower courts dismissed the claim, saying... You can't use Section 1983 for this purpose. But the Supreme Court reversed. And so 90 years after this statute was first enacted, with the case of Monroe versus Pape, the Supreme Court first recognized the right to sue for constitutional violations. And this is why it is such an important case in the book um, and in the story of civil rights protections in our country. It also... Uh, reflects on, Anya asked, how does this relate to what we see today? And it's important to take note that, and I try to explain in the book, that Monroe versus Pape is in, is in many ways a high point of civil rights protections, this recognition of the importance of this right. But in the years and decades following Monroe versus Pape, the Supreme Court has backtracked in many ways on those on that protection, on the goal to provide compensation and deterrence to people uh, when their rights have been violated through doctrines like qualified immunity um, and limitations on uh, uh, what constitutional protections actually mean um, and, and many other kinds of barriers so that 
the promise of Monroe versus Pape in many ways has been under-realized in recent years. So this phalanx of uh, shields that you talk about in the book, right? A lot of them are in response to Monroe versus Pape, right? So kind of closing the courthouse doors through this shield, sorry for the mixed metaphor, <laughs> uh, because Monroe was such an important case where so many more plaintiffs could actually come to federal courts and bring their claims. Could you give us examples of some of them? And it will set it up really nicely for us to talk about the cases that we have today. Examples of these shields that make accountability so difficult. Sure. I mean, certainly one of those shields is qualified immunity doctrine, which has been in the news very much, uh, very uh, a lot in recent years, which provides that even if an officer has violated someone's constitutional rights, they are entitled to qualified immunity unless there's a prior court decision with nearly identical facts. Um, it's not enough to be able to point to a generalized principle in the Supreme Court's view uh, that, for example, you can't use force against a person who's not resisting or who has surrendered. Instead, you have to find a prior case with facts particularized, in the court's words, to the facts of the case before the court. So you have to show that similar force was used against a person who was demonstrating that they had surrendered or were not resisting in a similar way. Uh, <clears throat> and we certainly have an example, uh, examples of that uh, case that we'll talk about today. But I think it's important to recognize that there are many other barriers as well uh, that the court has created, barriers that make it difficult to find a lawyer, barriers that make it difficult to plead a complaint, that make it difficult to prove a constitutional violation, um, and standards for holding local governments responsible are as difficult, to my view, to get past as qualified immunity. I, I, I think of that as it's a municipal immunity. And then, of course, we will also, as we will also talk about on this panel, if you're talking about federal officers, there is a whole separate set of protections uh, for those officers, which is and I think your, your words, Anya, a federal immunity. Yes. We can think about all of these protections as immunities. Right. And uh, one last question that will also set up one of the cases here. Um, James Monroe could have brought his case in state court. Why didn't he do that? Well, the lawyer for uh, the Monroes was of the view, and he talked about this after the case was successful, that... A, a, a state court was not going. A state court was not going to be sympathetic to this claim brought by a powerful or brought against a powerful and well-connected white police officer by a black family in the city of Chicago. He was of the view, <clears throat> and I think others felt at the time, the reason that they that there was this push to try to bring Section 1983 cases in federal court, and why. Monroe versus Pape had such an important impact was that there was the view that state courts were going to be hostile to this kind of claim. Local judges and local juries were going to be far more likely to find in favor of the defendant in the case. And so getting a federal forum was considered uh, really the only kind of possible way to vindicate these rights. 
Yes, and today we kind of, uh, Alex will talk about it, uh, uh, at the end of the recording, we have, uh, you know, states, courts sometimes providing uh, better alternatives to uh, civil uh, rights cases in federal courts because of doctrines like qualified immunity. Well, and just to say one, one point about that, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an irony that Congress created Section 1983 back in 1871 to create a federal forum because state courts were considered hostile. Now, today, the federal system is incredibly hostile because of protections like qualified immunity. So practitioners and their clients are more often going to the states to seek protections, the kinds of protections that they had the promise through cases like Monroe to bring in federal court. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So Thank you, Joanna. Let's now get to the cases, and we'll start with Seth, um, a case on municipal liability, uh, municipal immunity, really, and also another barrier that Joanna talks about in her book, and that's uh, what you have to actually plead in the complaints themselves. Yeah, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm, I'm can't tell you how thrilled I am to be up here, uh, it, it, especially with Joanna at the at, at one end of the table. She's been uh, incredibly uh, helpful and mentoring to me in my career as a legal scholar, and it's just really thrilling. Hey, my mic just turned on. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really thrilling to be up here at a table talking about uh, this incredibly important topic with her. Uh, so in the Aftermath of uh, George Floyd's death at the hands of Minnesota police officers, there were a number of protests around the country and around the world. Some of those protests occurred in the city of uh, Florissant. I think that's the way it's pronounced. I want to call it fluorescent, but I don't think that's <laughs> right. Florissant, Missouri, a suburb about 20 miles northwest of St. Louis with a population of just over 50,000 people. So we're talking about a relatively small suburban city. Uh, the Florissant Police Department's response to at least some of those protests resulted in the case that I'm going to discuss, Edwards v. City of Florissant. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the case. I'm going to highlight a couple of particularly apt chapters of Joanna's book. I'm going to talk briefly about one of my favorite Thai curry dishes, and then <laughs> I'm going to explain how all of that's relevant to what we're actually talking about today, finishing with a couple of observations. Uh, first, the background. Under Missouri law, a police agency can issue a dispersal order to a crowd uh, when there is an unlawful assembly under state criminal law, an unlawful assembly exists when there is a group of at least seven persons who agree to violate any criminal law with force or violence. Seven people, agreement to violate criminal law with force or violence, that creates unlawful assembly, which means the state can issue a dispersal order, which then the refusal to disperse can result in arrest. The plaintiffs in this case allege that the Florissant Police Department was wrongly declaring unlawful assemblies. That is, declaring unlawful assemblies when there were peaceful protests, when you didn't have seven people who were agreeing to violate criminal law by force or violence. And then, after declaring wrongfully unlawful assemblies, the police department would arrest people for failing to disperse. This, the plaintiffs alleged, violated the First Amendment and due process. The defendants moved to dismiss, arguing that the plaintiffs failed to state a claim upon which relief could be granted under 12b-6. In Chapter 3 of her book, 
Joanna talks about what plaintiffs need to survive a motion to dismiss under 12b-6. As a reminder, at this stage, we don't have any hard evidence. We just exist in the world of a complaint, right? We have allegations. And prior to 2007, a complaint just had to have enough facts in there to allege that there was, I think the word would be conceivable violations. There are some set of facts that would amount to a violation. It's from a case called Conley. In 2007, the court adopted a different standard. Uh, I'm not going to blame that standard (laughs) on you. The court adopted a different standard holding that instead of having some set of facts upon which uh, relief could be granted, the plaintiff had to allege a plausible violation. We'll talk about what that means in a second. That's from Iqbal. And then in 2009, the court held that the plaintiff must set out facts, not conclusions, to establish a plausible violation under Twombly. And sometimes that fact-conclusion line makes sense. The existence of Penang curry, one of my favorite Thai dishes, is a fact that exists. But whether it's delicious is a conclusion. It is, come at me. (laughs) Sometimes that fact-conclusion line breaks down a little bit. For example, if you're served a coconut milk curry and you're like, huh, is this Penang curry? That might be a fact or it might be a conclusion. If I have a curry and I say that's a Penang curry, I'm making both a factual statement and also kind of a conclusory statement there. That fact-conclusion distinction, as well as the plausible versus conceivable distinction, were both critically important in the Edwards case. Penang curry less so. Uh, The reality is that different people can view different sets of facts, or can view, excuse me, the same set of facts in very different ways. For more on this, see chapter seven of Joanna's book. The trial court and the appellate court in this case, the appellate majority in this case, understood the plaintiff's argument in Edwards to be basically as follows. State criminal law gives police power to issue dispersal orders when there's an unlawful assembly, There wasn't an unlawful assembly, so they didn't have the power to issue the dispersal order in this case. The problem with that argument and the uh, allegation that the department exceeded its authority is that uh, there are other aspects of state law beyond the state criminal unlawful assembly statute that would also allow the plaintiff, excuse me, allow the police department to issue dispersal orders. As both the district court and the Eighth Circuit majority uh, viewed it, the broader authority to issue the dispersal orders meant that just focusing, as the plaintiff did, on the unlawful assembly statute couldn't establish a plausible violation because there might have been another way for the city to issue that dispersal order. For there to be a plausible violation, the majority held, the plaintiffs would have to establish that the facts alleged, uh, that under the facts alleged, there was no basis for a dispersal order, as opposed to there not being this one basis for a dispersal order. As the majority put it, quote, the absence of criminal law violations by the protesters does not establish that a constitutional injury occurred. 
Make sense? Plaintiffs established that there might have been a violation of the dispersal order thing, but uh, of the unlawful assembly statute, but that's not the only possible route for uh, official action. Uh, for example, the trial court and the majority both held that if the protesters were obstructing traffic, that would be a valid basis for a dispersal order. And the trial court read the amended complaint in Edwards to basically concede that the protesters were obstructing traffic. It pointed out that in the complaint, the protesters acknowledged painting Black Lives Matter signs on the street and that officers pushed protesters out of the street. So although misconduct on the part of the officers for the Eighth Circuit majority was conceivable, the majority held that the mere possibility of misconduct is not enough to lay out a plausible violation. And for that reason, it dismissed the complaint over a dissent. Judge Jane Kelly disagreed, arguing in dissent that the existence of potential alternative legal justifications renders an allegation uh, implausible only when that alternative is concrete and obvious. That is, okay, maybe the city might have had some other reason for the dispersal order, but that's only going to obviate the allegation that there was a First Amendment and due process violation when it's obvious that there was an alternative. And that wasn't the case in Edwards, she argued, for two reasons. First, and this should not be a surprise, but seems to be in these cases, Courts are supposed to view the facts in the light that most favors the non-moving party. Here, the plaintiffs. The trial court read the complaint to concede that protesters were impeding traffic, but let's go back to what they did. Painted Black Lives Matter in the street and officers pushed them out of the street. Is there anything about traffic in that statement? There is not. And she pointed out in her uh, dissent you can't make up traffic facts that don't actually exist. And if it's a disputed fact, that's supposed to go to the non-moving party. That's supposed to, supposed to go to the plaintiff here. Second, uh, the existence of an alternative authority that could justify the dispersal order uh, doesn't actually establish in a concrete and obvious way that the city correctly exercised that authority. As Judge Kelly put it, even if, quote, the city could remove protesters who are blocking traffic, that doesn't mean the plaintiff's theory that they did so arbitrarily is implausible. In other words, even if the city of Florissant had some other reason to do what it did, it wasn't concrete and obvious that it did so legally. The plaintiffs alleged that the city had issued dispersal orders when there was no legal authority to do so. Judge Kelly pointed out that perhaps the officers had lawful reason to issue the dispersal orders, and perhaps they did not. But that question should survive a motion to dismiss and set up discovery so that it can be litigated at least at the summary judgment stage, if not further. One more point. I went back to both the complaint and the amended complaint in this case. It was very easy. My case was like 11 pages long. <laughs> I got the short case of, the, of this set here. Joanna's is like 89 pages. <laughs> so I had time to go back to the complaint, an amended complaint. Uh, and the, the Eighth uh, Circuit majority's focus is correct. The, the, uh, the plaintiffs were focused primarily on the state's unlawful assembly statute that I mentioned earlier. But there are at least a few statements in the complaint that I think should have satisfied the trial court and the Eighth Circuit majority, even under the standard that they purportedly applied. 
Paragraph 44 of the amended complaint, for example, was about the police dispersing peaceful protesters standing in, a, in an area marked, quote, designated protest zone, end quote. It's awfully tough to imagine that they were impeding traffic in the designated protest zone. Paragraph 46 was about a plaintiff who was, quote, roughly arrested despite having committed no crime and posing no danger. I think a fair reading of that at the motion to dismiss stage would suggest that they weren't committing a crime like impeding traffic and they were creating no danger like impeding traffic. So why didn't the trial court or Eighth Circuit majority read these facts as a plausible violation? In chapter seven, Joanna points out that the pleading standards don't exist purely in the abstract. And I think that's a really important point. They're applied by judges and judges can be skeptical about 1983 claims or Monell claims or Bivens claims for a whole set of reasons. And they're applying their skeptical maybe standards to a particular case in front of them. As Joanna powerfully points out, and as I think this case may demonstrate, that skepticism combined with amorphous pleading standards and other factors can effectively insulate police agencies, not just from liability, but from litigation processes like discovery that can help lawyers and courts get to the merits of a claim. Yeah, that point about these standards being applied by judges, I think we'll come back to this over and over and over during this event and kind of the discretion that they have when they're applying these standards and what they can do with them. Alex, we were all looking at you when we were talking about <laughs> Iqbal. <laughs> so I have to go back sure. to you and ask you for your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting case, and I think it points to the incoherence, fundamental incoherence of the Twombly and Iqbal standard and also the hostility that that standard can the way that standard can be deployed by judges who are hostile to civil rights claims. So let's talk about the incoherence for a second. Really, the case is about this distinction between <laughs> a claim being merely conceivable versus plausible versus an alternative explanation being more obviously plausible. And so if we were just sitting here and we went out to talk to someone in the street, we asked them, well, what does plausible mean to you? Conceivable would be one of the things that pops into their head. In other words, if something is plausible, it's also probably conceivable. But the Supreme Court told us, no, actually, plausible means something more than conceivable, more than merely conceivable. And sometimes it also means that if there's an obvious alternative explanation, it can render an otherwise plausible theory implausible. So there's just this incoherence in language. And then what happens is courts of appeals don't are, don't quite know how to apply that. And so some courts of appeals, in fact, most courts of appeals would say, yeah, you can have multiple plausible explanations. As long as one of them is consistent with the plaintiff's theory of relief, plaintiff survives. And then there are some courts, like the Edwards Court, that says, well, no. If we think the defendant's theory of, of why they acted lawfully is more plausible than the plaintiff's theory, then we're going to say the plaintiff's theory is implausible. And the fundamental problem with that is that's essentially asking a court at an early stage, as Seth said, before we really know anything about the case, to make a fact determination. Um, and why would we think courts are well positioned to do that? It gets to Joanna's point in the book about how much 
judges have a role to play in these civil rights cases. So it gives judges a cover if they're hostile to Section 1983 claims. It gives them a story they can tell. They can dress it up in the Supreme Court's language, although I think the Edwards opinion is inconsistent with actually the framework that the court gave us in Twombly and Iqbal, and I've written about this in other contexts. So I think, I think the Edwards court is wrong as to what Iqbal and Twombly mean, but there are enough courts that have applied that reading that it can be used in civil rights cases, and it has been used in civil rights cases more than other cases. Back to the fundamental problem in civil rights cases is that in, in most of those cases, the plaintiffs are at a severe informational disadvantage compared to defendants. It's generally not true in like contracts cases. It's not true in a lot of torts cases. It's not true in intellectual property cases. It is very much true in most civil rights cases. And so that's why it's a standard that's both incoherent and ripe for deployment by judges who are hostile to civil rights cases. Joanna, in, uh, in your research in general, you talk about how qualified immunity is actually not used in like as many cases as people think it is used to get rid of cases, right? And I think this kind of speaks to that a little. So um, th this idea of you can actually, you don't need to get to qualified immunity. You can just get rid of a case based on this Twombly and Iqbal standard and the complaint. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So. I did research, as I, I talk about in the book, um, more more briefly than in the in the um, in the academic research, uh, having looked at almost 1,200 police misconduct cases filed across the country, I found that fewer than four percent of cases were dismissed altogether on qualified immunity grounds, and it's consistent with that's consistent with research that Alex did regarding Bivens claims where he reached a similar result. And um, some people have read that, and uh, Anya and Patrick and I have, have, have uh, spent a lot of time talking about how frustrating this is, but have, have read that um, percentage to think that maybe qualified immunity is not so bad um, if only 4% of cases are dismissed. But, but actually, I think it's, it's a different set of um, conclusions to reach from that data. Uh, and... and one thing I think you can find, for, one conclusion I think you can draw is that qualified immunity ends up dismissing a relatively small percentage of cases because there are so many other ways that these cases can be dismissed, um, including the pleading standard. Um, and just to, to turn it back to qualified immunity, what that ends up meaning is that qualified immunity comes into play and is dispositive in cases that get past all of those other barriers, in cases where you are able to plead plausibly, are able to show a constitutional violation. And so, in my view, qualified immunity, although it was intended to weed out, quote unquote, insubstantial cases in the Supreme Court's view, is, is actually weeding out the most substantial cases that couldn't be kicked out of court in any other way. Well, let's talk about weeding out substantial cases, uh, Joanna. Uh, mm. Your case, Sosa. My 89-page <laughs> case. I think you have other things to do. No, <laughs> no, no, never. Um, so uh, this um, was a, uh, an 11th Circuit um, uh, on-bank case. So it was 11 judges um, on the 11th Circuit heard this, this case. It was brought by the plaintiff, David Sosa, who 
worked in research and development of airplane engines for, uh, for a, a couple of companies. He lived in Florida, in Martin County, Florida, and he had been arrested twice. This case is about a, a time that he was arrested uh, because there was an outstanding warrant in Harris County, Texas, for a different David Sosa. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of people in our country who's named who, who, with the name David Sosa. Uh, in twenty in twenty four, oh, sorry. So so he, but he was he was falsely arrested. Um, he's actually been falsely arrested twice for this same warrant. The first one was in 2014. He was arrested on this outstanding warrant in Harris County. Um, He made clear that his date of birth, height, weight, social security number, and tattoo information was different than the David Sosa who had the warrant out for his arrest. Um, That first time in 2014, he was held for three hours before they did fingerprint uh, looked at his fingerprints and released him, confirming he was the wrong person. But four years later, David Sosa was stopped again and arrested again for that same warrant. And even though he said to the arresting officer, this has already happened to me once before. I am not that David Sosa. And even though he said "My," he knew his date of birth and height and weight and all the rest did not match the David Sosa who had a warrant out against him, they continued to hold him. And this time they held him for three days before he was released. So he sued, alleging that his um, substantive due process rights were violated. It was dismissed because it was not a plausibly pled claim. Um, but when it got to the Court of Appeals, there are, the reason why it's 89 pages is that there's four different decisions in this case. I'll talk about three of them. <laughs> um, the majority said Sosa's constitutional rights have not been violated. And they, they looked, they relied on a case, um, Baker versus McCollin, which is a Supreme Court case, that says, the Supreme Court has said, Detention due to a mistaken identity doesn't violate the Constitution when it lasts only three days and is pursuant to a valid warrant. So if there is a warrant, it's a valid warrant, you're falsely arrested and you're held for three days. That does not violate the 14th Amendment. Just let that sink in for a moment. Um, And so the majority says this Baker case is the beginning and end of our analysis, no constitutional violation. Um, the concur- one of the concurrences disagrees. They say um, this is uh, slightly different than Baker. He was held, and there was a valid warrant, but he repeatedly declared his innocence. He repeatedly said, I am not the person you are looking for, and said, You've done, you've done this, <laughs> you've mistaken me for this David Sosa before. So according to the concurrence, they thought there could be a constitutional violation. However, the court said, the officer would be entitled to qualified immunity. And this is this 
this is this exam this is this doctrine and they talk about it in just the way that um, I mentioned before they said officers should get qualified immunity because you need prior court cases with very very close facts uh, to give them reasonable notice of what's prohibited and although there was another appeals case called Cannon where officers held someone for seven days and found that a jury could find that that conduct was unconstitutional because the officer knew or should have known that they had the wrong person. The concurrence said that prior case, uh, Cannon, can't control because in Cannon, the person was held for seven days. And in the Sosa case, they were held for three days. And so the law is not clearly established. You see what you see how crazy this is? So then there is a dissent. One judge of the 11 dissents. And it's it's the longest part of the uh, it's the longest part of the 89 pages. And part of what this dissenting judge is spending time on is the 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 horror and ridiculousness of this circumstance that a person going about their lives who has done nothing wrong can be arrested not once not but twice on a wrongful warrant let them know that they have the wrong person and still be held for 3 days this cannot be the society that we want to live in and this cannot be what the constitution means in the view of the dissenting judge there is this is a constitutional violation and also looking at these same cases Baker and this appellate case, Cannon, says that the rights are clearly established. And while the concurrence was focused on the difference between three days in detention versus seven days in detention, what the dissenting judge said was, that can't be, the, the difference of four days can't be what this case turns on. The point that was made in the Cannon case and it's consistent with the Supreme Court's case as well, is that you cannot keep holding someone when you have good reason to believe that they are the wrong person. And that's what was true in this case. And it shouldn't matter whether he was held for three days or for seven days. Now, I think that this is an interesting set of decisions, opinions in this case, and it goes a bit to points that Seth and Alex were just making about judges' discretion and the ways in which judges can exercise that discretion. If you read the Supreme Court and take the Supreme Court seriously, which is difficult sometimes for me to do, um, it would seem like qualified immunity is a set standard. I mean, it's, it, it's just interpreted one way. The question is, our officers on notice? Would every officer know that what he'd done was wrong? But you can see in the analysis of the concurrence and the dissent that they're viewing these prior cases in different ways. You can look at a prior case and see it in a different way. And to the concurrence, the key factor that made the law not clearly established was the fact that he was held, Sosa was held for three days instead of seven, which meant that it, the, can, the canon case didn't apply. To the dissenting judge, the question is not number of days held. The question is, did the officer have good reason to believe they had the wrong guy? And looking at it in that way, 
whether they were held for three days or seven days really shouldn't matter. Yeah, and uh, this is kind of a question to everybody. There is another concurrence by Judge Newsom. And, you know, Joanna just talked about how, you know, you have um, quite a bit of discretion. Judges are applying the law, right? But Judge Newsom is actually saying, there's nothing we can do. Our hands are completely tied. This is what this is. The law is what the law is. Can somebody speak to that kind of framing of the issue? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's nuts, right? Um, uh, so, so actually, uh, I don't think I said hi to Patrick this morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm going to disagree with something that you said very early on, but I like that suit. Um, so uh, Patrick, uh, in, his, in his opening remarks, talked about uh, police being above the law. I think that's the wrong framing here, right? It's not that they're above the law, because if they were above the law, we would just need to better enforce the laws that we currently have. The problem is this is perfectly consistent with the law, right? The law creates the immunities that police uh, uh, enjoy, that, that inhibit accountability. As a normative statement, I completely agree. We have an above the law issue, but descriptively, uh, no, actually, I, I can see where Judge Newsom is, is coming from. And one of the observations here is kind of a heads I win, tails you lose situation, right? If we if we go back to the the plausible standard, right? Um, well, if there's a plausible explanation for what the police did, then uh, then there's no plausible violation, so we can dismiss. But when we're talking about the Fourth Amendment and probable cause, like probable cause that this guy may be that David Sosa, the plausible explanation that he's not doesn't matter anymore, right? When we talk about clearly established, the plausible uh, idea, the plausible argument that this is clearly established, or at least that there's a plausible claim to know that you shouldn't be detaining this guy anymore, let's not even get into three days. Let's talk about the first 45 minutes, right? Oh, wow, he's a different shape and uh, has a different social security number and tattoos are different. Um, the, the, that implausibility... Uh, breaks down a little bit, right? Uh, we need a very, very close case. Well, that sounds like the opposite side of implausible or or plausible uh, to me. Carlos, uh, I know you wanted yeah. to add something. Right. On, on the point uh, that Anya raised about uh, judicial humility, um, we're, we're um, you know, this is the law. We just apply the law. We don't make the law. We're humble judges. It's for the it's for the legislature to make the law. I think that's that will be a theme when I um, talk about the Bivens action in, in a moment. But um, I think that's that's uh, again crazy, um, uh, in, and belied by the court's uh, attitude towards other doctrines. For example, qualified immunity appears in no statute; it is made up by the judges. So they have no the judges have no uh, compunction about making law in certain contexts. But they they claim to to have um, to be unable to make law in in other circumstances. Can I make one other point about Judge Newsom's dis, uh, concurrence, which is he has this discussion of substantive due process, right, an assault on substantive due process. And in the assault, and this is becoming, I'm seeing this more frequently with uh, folks who are attacking substantive due process. He trots out this line about Dred Scott and says, oh, by the way, if you like substantive due process, see Dred Scott, our first substantive due process case, the case that said 
free black people couldn't be citizens, couldn't be U.S. citizens, the case that essentially constitutionalized slavery. Okay. At the same time, he ignores the fact that Dred Scott is also an originalist decision. And part of his critique of substantive due process is that it does not hew to the original text of the Constitution. And I just feel like if you're going to use Dred Scott to attack substantive <laughs> due process, then you cannot at the same time elevate originalism as if somehow it's something to be, to be, uh, uh, to be treasured, given that Dred Scott is both of those things. Um, so that's also something I'd like to say about Judge Newsom's concurrence, which is not it is not an example of judicial humility, that's for sure. He uses... Uh, he, he has this sentence uh, in his concurrence that says, not everything that stinks violates the Constitution. Um, how, and given the horrible facts of this case, including that the warrant was like a 22-year-old warrant, right? And that it would have taken uh, uh, the uh, government officials about a minute to actually check the identity of this individual. Can you speak to... Uh, this idea that not everything that stinks violates the Constitution, and somehow this case is one of those stinky cases that <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't. I mean, I think you you can you, that line of reasoning you can see in a number of substantive due process cases, um, which you know can get sometimes referred to as sort of a catch-all. I think, in his opinion, as well, sort of a catch-all protection of substantive due process um, where something just seems wrong. Um, and, and in the beginning, in the years after Monroe versus Pape, part of court's concerns, and by the way, they were the same concerns that were raised in 1871 when the Ku Klux Klan Act or Section 1983 was first passed, there was this concern that People would go into court with nickel and dime claims, and in fact, they use the sort of this language: a, a, a case could be worth only five dollars or five cents, but still end up in federal court um, if you could try to hang some sort of constitutional violation on uh, the conduct. And the pushback was a, a concern, I think, about frivolous cases. Um, about cases clogging the courts um, and this notion that we shouldn't expect the Constitution to protect everything. Of course, the Sosa case is not a nickel and dime case. Uh, being held in jail for three days uh, on, on, a, on a wrongful arrest seems like it, it, it is not that kind, of, that kind of nickel and dime frivolous case. But, but I do think that that is some of the animating concerns that have led courts to police the bounds of substantive due process. Sometimes I think there's a um, some tension when uh, the court is talking about, well, th this, this is really, we have to only make sure that really serious stuff gets the benefit of constitutional protections, right? And that, that seems to me to flip the issues in a number of ways. Uh, and it's in due process, it's in Fourth Amendment claims, it's in the use of force context. Not every shove will violate the Fourth Amendment, right? Um, but sometimes I think the court and the lower courts get confused about the difference between the importance of being in federal court 
and the importance of constitutional protections. If you have a right to not be locked up, then you have a right to not be locked up. Even if you're locked up for five minutes, shouldn't that violate the Constitution? Why doesn't that shove violate the Constitution, right? The Constitution in our system limits government authority. So why do we need a huge uh, uh, excessive force claim or or something that goes way beyond government authority to get to the point of saying that's a constitutional violation? I think sometimes the reason is not actually looking at the constitutional protections. It's really looking more at, well, we want to keep federal court for serious stuff. So, so far we talked about cases that were filed under Section 1983, right? And Monroe versus Pape is the groundbreaking case with regard to this amazing civil rights statute. But what about cases where you can't file under Section 1983 or where you don't want to file under Section 1983? What about cases where you just want to basically say, Constitution gives me this right, this right was violated, so I want to see directly under the Constitution. The next two cases that we will talk about speak speak specifically to that idea of being able to sue directly under the Constitution, whether it's federal Constitution or state Constitution. We'll start with Carlos, and uh, Alex has a case that very much speaks to that other case. So let's just uh, get going on this and kind of contrast the two. Thank you. Um, first of all, I, I want to congratulate Joanna on, on a wonderful book. It, it's, a, it's really an enjoyable read and very valuable, and it really brings to life the cases that I've been teaching for so many years in a much more boring way. <laughs> uh, so I think uh, my teaching of those cases will uh, um, change significantly based on uh, my reading of this book. Um, so uh, yes, as, uh, as Anya said, there, um, this case involves a suit against a federal official, and there's no statute like Section 1983 that authorizes a remedy against federal officials who violate the Constitution. Um, So bad as the situation is of um, persons who are injured by state officials, I would venture to say that the, uh, the situation of persons injured by federal officials is even worse. Because even though uh, state officials in, uh, enjoy a qualified immunity, I think, as the case that I'll be describing in a moment uh, indicates, federal officials have an absolute immunity. Uh, basically, the court doesn't put it that way, but I think uh, the holdings in these cases basically uh, establish that. So um, how did we get here? Uh, so there is no uh, statutory basis for suing uh, and getting damages against federal officials who violate the Constitution. Uh, for many years, you could sue them under the common law and get damages. But in 1971, um, the court in the Bivens case, Bivens versus six unknown named agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Well done. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the court recognized that there is a remedy implicit in the Constitution itself. And so you could bring a claim basically based upon the Constitution. And so Bivens, the facts of Bivens were very similar to the facts of of Monroe v. Pape. Um, Fourth Amendment violation, uh, the federal officials uh, entered his home without a warrant and uh, did many unconstitutional things. The... um, The court held that uh, Bivens could sue directly under the Constitution, uh, and uh, in 
two later cases, Davis v. Passman and Carlson v. Green, the court uh, expanded this or applied Bivens to uh, two different contexts. But soon after that, the court began uh, cutting back on the Bivens remedy to the point where today the court has said that um, uh, recognizing causes of action uh, under the Constitution is a disfavored activity. And, um, and the court basically, it hasn't overruled Bivens, but I, um, I, I would say that it has virtually limited Bivens to its facts. Uh, and we'll see how that, uh, that uh, operates as applied by the court in this case. Um, and why has it done this? Because um, of uh, the, the belief that it is up to Congress to establish uh, remedies. This is an act of legislation. The uh, Bivens case, the court uh, has indicated, was an improper act of judicial legislation, and that is the court's concern. As I mentioned a moment ago, though, the court doesn't have uh, uh, the same concern about making law that takes away your right to a remedy or limits your right to a remedy, such as uh, through doctrines like qualified immunity. So um, what about this case? The case uh, Pettibone versus Russell uh, also grows out of the uh, protests that occurred after the murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020. In this, in this case, it was um, protests in uh, Portland, Oregon, and the plaintiff was a participant in, the, in those protests. Other, there were other plaintiffs as well, as, as well as the Black Millennial Movement, an organization, and the or Rose City Justice, another organization. So there were a number of plaintiffs. Uh, Pettibone was just the principal one. Um, and their allegation, they sued a number of officials, including among them uh, um, an official named Russell, who was the director of the Federal Protective Services Northwest Region, was and presumably still is. Um, and, uh, right, the, because very rarely <laughs> does anything happen in terms of employment consequences to these guys. So... Um, so the allegations were that uh, Russell uh, and the other defendants violated the Fourth Amendment uh, through unlawful arrests and excessive force. And specifically, uh, the allegation was that they indiscriminately used violent tactics on lawful protesters, including by shooting them in the head and body with impact munitions and pepper balls, spraying them directly in the face with pepper spray, shoving them to the ground, hitting and beating them with batons, and firing massive clouds of tear gas at them. So um, this was the allegation against all the officials, and specifically uh, Russell, it was alleged, uh, um, was aware of that this was going on, was closely monitoring the situation, yet did nothing to stop it. Um, so. The court um, uh, in this uh, appellate decision was reviewing uh, a, state, uh, a lower court decision which um, recognized that there was a Bivens action for this and found that the qualified immunity did not protect the officials, that this was a violation of so clearly far, established so good. law. <laughs> uh, but the appellate court reversed. Uh, it didn't even touch or uh, consider qualified immunity because it held that there is no Bivens action uh, uh, on these facts. So notice that the, the decision assumes that these facts are true. It also assumes that these facts violate the Constitution, that the acts of the defendants violate the Constitution. What the court held was even if it violated the Constitution, there's no right of action for damages against these officials. So why? 
I mean, Bivens did uh, recognize a cause of action uh, under the Fourth Amendment um, uh, that uh, was is based directly on the Constitution. Why uh, was there no cause of action here? Well, the court um, applied very recent holdings, which are, as I said, uh, virtually limit Bivens to its facts. So the court's analysis is two steps. First, does this case uh, present a new context for Bivens? In other words, would this be an expansion of Bivens beyond the narrow facts of that case? Um, and practically anything will render this a new context, even the most minor differences. Um, so for example, here, the court said the, this is a new context because the defendant um, was a higher level, higher ranking official. Uh, in, in the Bivens case, the defendants were street level officials of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. In this case, it's a supervisory official. So it's a higher level. The, uh, and the claim is that, they, uh, that he failed to do something. He didn't actually do the, um, the assaults himself. He just failed to properly supervise them. Um, and um, so this was the, the main uh, difference between uh, Bivens and this case, and that was enough to make this a new context. So if this is a new context, uh, what's the analysis then? The analysis then is, is there any reason to hesitate to recognize a Bivens action? Uh, the, 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 this was language that the court did use in Bivens itself, but the court has been applying it more and more stringently. And, and most importantly, the court has been applying this uh, um, reason for hesitation standard in a way that practically makes, uh, makes it always satisfied uh, because the court is very much of the view that it is improper for the courts to recognize a Bivens action. It is a, a matter for the legislature. And uh, therefore, it, uh, it views any judicial recognition of a, um, of a damage remedy to be basically uh, a reason to hesitate. Uh, I mean, this is this may be going uh, too far, and the court in this case um, uh, did find reasons for hesitation that were that were beyond simply um, that it's an improper, um, you know, an improper uh, thing for the courts to be doing. Um, uh, but the 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 court's uh, holding uh, shows that there's not much that you need to show to. Uh, to uh, show that there's a reason for hesitation. What is the alternative remedy that the court said is available? So uh, one of the uh, reasons for hesitation is that, that um, there was an alternative remedy, uh, but the alternative remedy was a grievance procedure, a grievance procedure uh, within the Department of uh, Homeland Security. Uh, but notice that this grievance, <laughs> this grievance procedure doesn't entitle you to damages, and it, it, it at best um, uh, leads to an investigation of the conduct. Uh, but the court found that even so, that's enough of a reason to hesitate. It's an alternative um, uh, way to get some sort of review of this conduct, and you don't need damages after all. Alex. Well, so it's just, you know, so this is just such a classic example of um, what I think lower courts are doing in response to the Supreme Court's since 1980 hostility to Bivens actions, which is progressively every single case since 1980, the Supreme Court has refused to find a Bivens remedy in any context, 
lots of different reasons. And over time, the reason has changed and just gotten more and more and more hostile. And so I think, and, but yet the Supreme Court hasn't overruled Bivens, hasn't overruled Carlson, hasn't overruled Davis, the, the three essentially 1970s cases in which the Supreme Court said, yes, there's a remedy for a violation of the Fourth Amendment, yes, there's a violation for, uh, for the eight, a remedy for a violation of the Eighth Amendment, and yes, there's a, a remedy for a violation of essentially equal protection. Um, and so on one hand, the Supreme Court's gone increasingly hostile and made it very, very difficult. On the other hand, they haven't overruled those decisions. And I think what lower courts are doing are basically acting as if the Supreme Court has overruled Bivens. And they don't have to worry because they're gonna find some reason not to extend a remedy against federal officials who violate the Constitution. And they know the Supreme Court is not gonna take cert and it's not gonna do anything about it. And just slowly, progressively, they're gonna let the lower courts do all this work even though they're not willing to take the step, or at least there doesn't yet seem to be enough momentum in the court to take the step to actually formally overrule Bivens. So I think like, that's, that's Egbert, right? Yeah. Yeah, see Bird versus Lamb, IJ case in the yeah. Fifth Circuit, where essentially it was nothing other than absolute immunity, yeah. but the Supreme Court didn't want to take yeah. it. I mean, so even like, even in the two, even in two, well, Minetti versus Pollard was what, 2010? Is that right? Around there? Yeah. Right, so even in Minetti versus Pollard, there was language in the Supreme Court about an alternative remedy for it to suffice, it has to offer comparable prospects of deterrence and comparable prospects of compensation. And then we get to this decision and an alternative remedy is a filing a grievance within DHS offering no prospect of deterrence and no prospect of compensation and as if Minechi which was a case that was hostile to Bivens, just, we're just gonna ignore it and the Supreme Court's not gonna do anything about it. Does that sound right to you, Carlos? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, uh, you could possibly describe Bivens as a dead case walking, uh, in the in the sense that it's um, you know that it's being confined to its facts as the courts are um, interpreting and applying the the Supreme Court's more recent cases. And it's obvious that the the court, I mean, the court has said it wouldn't rule, it wouldn't decide Bivens the same way today. Right. Well, it said we we might not decide it the same <laughs> way, right? And lower courts are taking that and saying yeah. it means the Supreme Court wouldn't decide it the same way. So, I mean, it's all. And as a result, uh, even the Ninth Circuit, which is considered to be relatively friendly to claims like this, right, is saying yeah. there's nothing we so can this, do. Yeah, this is a Ninth Circuit case. Let me just say one, uh, one thing, a very uh, law professory thing to say, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, I just think the idea that this is that the issue of recognizing damages for violation of the Constitution is for Congress as opposed to the courts is just completely wrongheaded. I mean, um, I think there's a, a very um, uh, strong structural reason to prefer the courts as the branch to recognize uh, these uh, remedies. I mean, after all. Um, what is the job of federal officials? It's to enforce the laws that Congress enacts. <laughs> and um, uh, what, is, what does the Constitution do? It places limits on what the executive officials can do to enforce the laws that Congress enacts. And so Congress is likely to be very happy with under-enforcing the constitutional limits, uh, thus allowing um, the, you know, uh, unhampering 
the uh, federal officials in their enforcement of the laws that Congress passed. So I think there's a uh, there's a reason to be suspicious of Congress's um, uh, of, of placing the responsibility on Congress to determine when there should be uh, damage remedies against federal officials. I think um, you know cases going back to Marbury versus Madison are support the notion that it is for the courts to protect the Constitution, and I would say that includes uh, uh, recognizing remedies for violation of the Constitution. That's well said. And we're going to transition to the case where there is actually a remedy under the Constitution in Nevada. But before we go there, I want one of you to tell me whether, uh, you know, plaintiffs in the Ninth Circuit suing federal officials would have been able to go to state court and uh, try to do it there. Alex. I think that's where Alex <laughs> so, um, you mean, could they have gone to sue federal officials in state court yes. for violations of the federal constitution? Yes. I, I don't think it would have been any more uh, effective. They could have gone to sue state officials for violations of the state constitution, but I don't think they would have done any better in state court under the federal constitution. And, and I want really to pause on that, because when we're talking about state and local officials, we're talking about lawyers actually choosing where to go under state law or federal law and being able to make that choice. But when we talk about federal officials, including federal police, you can't go to federal courts. You can't go to federal court, can't go to state court. Yeah, so um, on that point, I, I mean, as I mentioned before Bivens, there was a long history of enforcing the Constitution through the common law. And so uh, at that point, you probably could go to state court to bring a common law action for violation of the Constitution. But Congress uh, enacted a law, the Westfall Act, which takes away, preempts state uh, causes of action uh, under the Constitution. I actually, my, the article that you mentioned yes. that I co-wrote with Steve Vladek argues that um, they meant to preserve common law, right. common law actions against um, federal officials who violate the Constitution. Um, the, the, the statute takes away common law actions against federal officials but preserves um, suits for enforcement of the Constitution. And that has been interpreted as preserving Bivens claims. And there's no Bivens, But uh, I think the language is consistent with um, preserving common law claims for violation of the Constitution. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court has, has gone in a different direction on that uh, point. So what we have now is arguably worse than before Bivens, right? Because Bivens itself has been deprived of its teeth, has, has been limited, practically limited to its facts. And now we don't even have state common law remedies for violation of the Constitution. So in a sense, um, uh, the, uh, the, the recent cases uh, take a step back. And finally, the... Um, the statute preserves Bivens, but yet the court has been interpreting Bivens more and more narrowly. Um, I think one could interpret the Westfall Act as as a legislative um, uh, blessing of a Bivens action, and therefore the court should stop cutting back on it, but the, the court has not done that. That is exactly the argument that Fonder and Baltmanis make in a Georgetown uh, Law Review piece from, I don't know, post-Iqbal. Post Were you going to say something, yes, Seth, before I talk I, about that? Yeah, just, just very briefly, when we're talking about um, federal law enforcement, right, one possible response is, well, how concerned about that should we be, given that most of policing is state and even more so local? 
but they're intertwined, right? Almost every agency, certainly every agency of size, has officers who are serving on federal task forces who can, for the sake of litigation convenience, uh, be designated as federal officers and thus uh, immune potentially to state criminal law while they're engaged in task force operations. The, the federal law enforcement apparatus is actually far larger than it looks based on the number of full-time federal employees because of the, the number of task forces. There are a ton. Should we talk about Mac? Let's do it. All right, so we saved the good news for last. Um, <laughs> And I get to deliver it, maybe because Anya feels bad that every time she has to introduce me or any time that I'm introduced at any conference having anything to do with anything, it has to be mentioned that I argued Ashcroft versus Iqbal for the losing side in a 5-4 <laughs> decision. So this is, you know, some, so there's some, I don't know, Anya's not totally retributive. Uh, <laughs> not, not completely. Um, not completely. Uh, so, so this Mac versus Williams is an example, I think, of what can happen in an implied rights of action setting where you start from completely different presumptions than we start on the Bivens side. So this is a case involving uh, Sonia Mack who was, uh, went to High Desert State Prison in Nevada to visit her boyfriend um, and she alleges that she was strip searched there and without reasonable suspicion and after the search um, they suspended her visiting privileges indefinitely. And I, and I don't, I think, I mean, I, I go to a lot of prisons and jails. I have been most of my life as a lawyer. I've represented incarcerated people. And the ability to visit somebody in prison cannot be uh, overstated how important that is to both the family outside and also to the incarcerated person. And so both the strip search and also the indefinite suspension of visiting um, from a personal perspective, I think, is incredibly important to pause and think about what that means for Ms. Mack and for her, her loved one, her boyfriend. She brought claims in, in federal court under the federal constitution and under uh, Nevada's state constitution. Um, and then the federal district court did something, I think that's relatively unusual, which is it's certified to Nevada's Supreme Court, that, it said, that is, it said to Nevada Supreme Court, there's a question of state law we want you to answer for us before we proceed here. And the question of state law that we want you to answer for us is four questions. One, does the state constitution create a cause of action under Article One, Section 8 of Nevada's constitution, which is essentially the, the analog to the due process clause? Second, does it does the state constitution create a cause of action under Article I, Section 18, which is essentially the analog to the Fourth Amendment, search and seizure? If it does, are there any defenses to those causes of action? And if it does, what remedies exist for those causes of action? So the first thing the Nevada Supreme Court said is, we're actually going to answer the questions we want to answer, not the questions you want us to answer. We're not going to answer the due process question because we don't have enough facts and we, don't, we think we just would be essentially giving you an advisory opinion. And so we're just going to answer the Article I, Section 18 question, which is about search and seizure. And then it says, as to defenses and remedies, we're only going to answer two questions. One is, does qualified immunity exist? Because that's the only defense that the defendants have raised, so we're not going to talk about other potential defenses. And as to remedy, we're just going to an ask, answer the question as to whether or not there's a damages remedy, because that's all Ms. Mack is seeking. By the way, that's all probably she 
could seek um, probably um, because of other limitations that Joanna talks about in her book regarding our ability to get federal courts to say something in the future about what, what future conduct government officials can engage in. So anyway, so they say, okay, let's, let's answer this question. Let's start with the cause of action. And they actually start in a place that is so different <laughs> from where we start on the federal side. They say, look, Nevada's constitution, it's self-executing. We don't need legislation to enforce the constitutional rights. It gives rise to a cause of action by virtue of its existence, regardless of legislative action. So that's actually, that's just the easy answer. We've got a constitution, it gives us rights, it's self-executing, there's a cause of action. The remedial question is harder. That is, just because there's a cause of action doesn't mean damages is the remedy. And so for that, the court looked to a few things. It ultimately adopts a, a three-step analysis, but at, at the start it says, you know, Bivens, this, this federal uh, precedent around Bivens, it's sort of relevant, but not really that relevant. There's this, um, there's this language, here's the quote. Thus, we do not view the question before us as simply a battle between judicial and legislative competence, which is exactly what Carlos was talking about, what was driving Pettibone and all of the Bivens jurisprudence. Accordingly, the Bivens decision and its progeny did not by themselves resolve whether Mac may enforce her, her search and seizure rights under our constitution by a private action for money damages. So they say, we're, Bivens is only so relevant, especially the, the worry that federal courts have over judicial versus legislative competence, really not relevant for us. And so here's the three steps. One is we look to the text of the Constitution to see if we can see anything, discern anything in the text that tells us whether there's a damages action. If that doesn't help us, we go to the second step, which actually looks to this body of law uh, from the restatement of torts, um, looking to whether a damages action would further the purpose of the constitutional provision and whether it's needed to assure that that provision is effective. And then step three, they say, is a special factors analysis. They actually use the language special factors. And so it looks on its face like it's similar to the Bivens special factors analysis, and it's nothing like it in application. Um, and again, they say, uh, we're going to use special factors, but we're not going to use the Supreme Court's version of special factors. So how it's applied here. Um, they go to the text first. And this, I gotta, I, this, this language is hilarious to me because um, they have to figure out whether the, the constitutional provision actually tells us on its text whether or not there's a, there's a damages action. And here's what it says. Article 1, Section 18, quote, unambiguously does not explicitly authorize a right of action for money damages. However, it unambiguously does not explicitly preclude a right of action for money damages either. In other words, it unambiguously says nothing. It is unambiguously ambiguous. Um, so awesome. Uh, and, and also they say, look, the fact that the legislature hasn't taken action here doesn't really tell us much uh, because the legislation, remember, the Constitution is self-executing. The legislation doesn't have to do anything. So the fact that they haven't done anything, we're not going to infer. In the Bivens context, a very different inference is drawn from legislative silence. And by the way, the legislature doesn't even have exclusive power to enforce the Constitution because we still have that power, again contrast to the federal Bivens jurisprudence. So we learn nothing from step one, so we go to step two. And here, the court says, we've got to decide whether providing a damages remedy furthers the purpose of the provision. Is it necessary to effectuate the provision? And so we've got to think about alternative remedies. 
And so again, they, they use the language of alternative remedies, which we also use in the Bivens federal context, but they, they, they mean something so different. They start by saying, the legislature hasn't creating, created any alternative remedies for violations of the Constitution. Like that's what they're looking for, an alternative remedy for a violation of the Constitution. Yeah, there's not an, the grievance procedure, not right? a grievance <laughs> procedure, not an, not an alternative tort claim remedy, right? Is there something specific the legislature has done to enforce the Constitution? The fact that there's equitable relief doesn't work because it doesn't address past wrongs. Contrast that with Bivens, where some courts have said equitable relief is an alternative remedy. The fact that there are state law tort claims, that is, you can bring state common law tort claims here, also doesn't solve the problem because the Constitution protects something special. The Constitution isn't just about private law tort obligations. Which is what Bivens itself says. Exactly said. what Bivens <laughs> itself says, exactly. It's almost like Bivens lives, but the 1971 version of Bivens lives, right? Um, before, except for federal officials. Yeah, no. except for federal well, officials. Except for federal yeah. court. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so, so applying these re, re, restatement factors, uh, monetary relief is important, it's necessary, and then they get to special factors. And they list a bunch of special factors, which look again a bit like the special factors that federal courts will talk about in the Bivens context. They talk about deference to legislative judgment, avoidance of adverse policy consequences, considerations of the fisc, of governmental fiscal, fiscal policy, practical issues and, and judicial competence, but when they apply it, again, it is so different from what we see in the federal Bivens content. So deference to legislative judgment, there's nothing to defer to. The legislature hasn't done anything, so we don't have to defer to them, okay? Um, no policy consequences, because guess what? The government already has to abide by this constitutional provision. Oh my God, what a concept. Like, we're not doing, we're not really in, doing anything special because there's a constitution that the government has to follow. Imagine. Right, and contrast that, courts. contrast that with Pettibone, where the court says, if we recognize the Bivens action, we will impair the, the freedom of the executive branch. To violate but, the Constitution, right? right. I mean, what's that? What's that? Um, you know, uh, no significant fiscal consequences because there's already liability for torts. Um, which also would be true on the, on the federal side of things. And no doom burdens on courts, you know, th th because courts already are adjudicating the Constitution in equitable claims and in other claims. So if you took this analysis and you applied it to Pettibone, you'd come out completely the opposite way. And so I think uh, they do talk about qualified immunity at the end, right? And they say we're disposing of qualified immunity because um, the state has already waived its sovereign immunity and we read that waiver broadly. And there's nothing in that waiver that says anything about qualified immunity. So as to defenses, no qualified immunity. So, so it's just, I think, at the end of the day, really an example of where you can end up in if you start with completely different presumptions about rule of law, about obligations of state officers to follow the Constitution, and about the role of courts to enforce the Constitution. Well, uh, I think this is a, a great case. I mean, I, uh, I, um, I was, I don't monitor, uh, but uh, obviously I should, state court cases on, on similar issues to Bivens. Uh, and this, this decision, basically, um, the analysis is what I have been arguing in my Bivens scholarship is the right analysis. Um, it even cites Marbury versus Madison. Um, and uh, just to add one thing is the, um, the court 
doesn't assume that it's the legislature's responsibility to create remedies. To the contrary, it has a footnote where it it explains that if the legislature limits remedies, that might be unconstitutional. Exactly. Uh, which I think is significant and I think should be the case in the federal arena as well. Absolutely. Seth, let's go to you and then we'll wrap up with Joanna. Sure. Uh, I just want to focus on, on one piece of Mac because there are a bunch of really interesting pieces to it. But uh, for me, uh, I've done a little bit of looking at state tort claims acts and a number of states just view those as establishing causes of action for constitutional torts. Uh, and one of the interesting aspects to Mac to me is they reject that approach so hard. Uh, they, they, uh, the, this is on page 23 and 24 of the opinion. Um, they say uh, tort uh, remedies do not provide meaningful recourse for violations of constitutional rights against searches and seizures by government agents. As state tort law ultimately protects and serves different interests than constitutional guarantees. A state actor's legal obligation under a state constitution, quote, within quote, extends far beyond that of his or her fellow citizens, end quote, within quote, continue original quote, under tort law. Accordingly, a state actor is not only required to respect the rights of other citizens, uh, a la tort, I guess, but also sworn to protect and defend those rights. And that's so incredibly impactful, right? It, it, it's back to the point about this is not just a right to be free from indignity or a right to be free of you know, being tortiously touched. This is a constitutional right. Your protection against the state is meaningfully different than your protection against non-state actors. I think that's at the basis of a bunch of what constitutional law should be. Uh, and I, I, I just found that paragraph, like I read that paragraph like nine times. I'm getting goosebumps just yeah, listening to this. Yeah, it's such a good paragraph. <laughs> it's one of several, but that's the one I wanted to point out. And Joanna, that really goes back to this whole idea of vindication of constitutional rights. That's what you talk about in your book. Um, so can you kind of rub it all off for us? <laughs> it all off. And by the way, for the record, the audience listening at home won't know this, but we have a lot of windows and it was kind of dark uh, because there were clouds. And then all of a sudden, Alex started talking about Mac and, <laughs> and sun came out. And now it's just beautiful blue skies. That's what always happens when Alex starts talking. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I mean, I do think that I, there's, there's little that I could do to add to the, this, this terrific conversation, except maybe to just simply say that these cases, although they uh, don't tend explicitly to frame themselves this way, do, uh, and, the, and the judge is certainly the, the dissenting judge in, in um, Sosa, but the, you know, these are really conversations and questions about what the Constitution means, what it protects, and the extent to which we can rely on constitutional protections for the vindication of uh, the violation of people's rights. And what you see, I think, in conversation among these judges, certainly saw it in, in Sosa, but, but in the rest as well, is sort of one approach which is, which is um, framing itself as as needing to follow the rules, needing to make sure that it you know they don't overstep, needing to make sure that uh, they are giving appropriate deference to the legislative branch, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are other judges who are saying are a different perspective that says this is a constitutional right we are talking about. This is a harm that we as a society, 
need to protect. And, and those conversations, I think you can see play out in all of the decisions that we've talked about today. And the difference in that perspective um, is the difference in, in whether, uh, whether rights are going to be protected or not, whether, whether they are being recognized and, and foregrounded, or whether the conversation is going to be about deference to the legislature or you know, dotting various I's and crossing various T's. After all, that's what the judiciary is for, right? Enforcing constitutional rights. That's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is a perfect time for us to wrap up. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Joanna, Carlos, Seth, Alex. It's been an amazing discussion. Thank you, Anya. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you everyone.